So, good morning. It's good to be here this morning. Hope it's good for you all to be here as well. We're glad that you're here. Um, This morning we are beginning our six-week series on mission community. God's mission, your community, his gospel. And these six sermons, these six messages are really um, just the beginning of an emphasis that will last through the fall into next year and hopefully for the rest of our lives as we engage in kingdom-building um, uh, endeavors outside of the four walls of this campus. We met as a staff earlier this year in Daytona for a couple of days of intensive prayer and study, and we, we developed a plan by which we would engage you, the congregation, as well as us, to step out of these walls and to engage your community, the people with which you have influence. And as we started to develop these things and work on calendar and that sort of thing, it became clear that we needed to have a deep theological vision for what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. And so for the next six weeks, you're going to hear the theology behind why we are doing what we're doing. And in addition to that, you're going to hear some critical thought about um, our culture and where it is and how that theology then interacts with our culture in a way that can be effective and powerful for God's kingdom and for its growth. And so today is the beginning of those sermon seri- that sermon series, and today we're going to talk about the gospel. In the coming weeks, you will hear Jesus as the head of the church and church the body of Christ. You will hear about the duty of the local church organization, what it is that we as a church body should be doing within these four walls. You'll hear about the mandate of the church, and you'll hear about the micro uh, factors and the macro dilemma. And by the Macro dilemma, I mean what's taking place in the culture in America today and, and, and where the direction it's headed and what it's doing with the church, just sort of dragging the church along. And then the micro factors are a close look at FBC loops. What are the things that are about us? What are we about? And how does it affect this theology, affect how we can function within this macro culture with the theology that we're going to be talking about? Does that make sense? And so we'll wrap all that up then with uh, our our last talk will be on solutions, what it is that we as a body are going to be asking you to engage in and how you can participate. And so make sure to be here um, through these six weeks. And and as we complete this series, we will make a big ask. Um, It's our desire to see God do a movement in and through his people here at FBC Loops. And to begin with, what we're asking from you is that you would just pray. Just pray. I, put, I had these made and, and put in the pew in front of you, and it's just a commitment card that says, I commit to pray. Two or three names of people that God might lay on your heart. Pray for two or three names of people that you have influence with that you might be able to lead um, towards God's kingdom. Just pray for that. Pray for that. Put your name and phone number down there. I'd like to talk with you about it and uh, give you further direction as time comes. So fill that out, drop it in the offering plate at the end of service, all right? Good. Any such endeavor as this must begin um, with the gospel. The gospel is core. We need to call ourselves back to the basics and reorient ourselves with a robust understanding of the gospel as it's preached in the New Testament. This is the beginning of our theological vision for mission community. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives a, uh, like a thumbnail sketch of the gospel. And in it, he says that the gospel is of first importance. There's nothing else that's more important than the gospel. It's 
of prime importance, and every person who's called to be a follower of Jesus really has the responsibility to grapple with the gospel and all of its implications. N.T. Wright, a great thinker in our time, says that every generation has to do business afresh with the crucifixion. And however well we think we know the story and its meaning, we are not absolved from that responsibility. We must grapple with the cross. Dallas Willard believed that the gospel was all about world revolution, and he taught that unless the church is willing to do the hard work of helping the congregation build an understanding of a robust gospel that embraces discipleship, that we as the church cannot fully engage in this, in this world revolution that Jesus began 2,000 years ago. And so this morning, we're going to dive back in to the gospel, and we're going to seek to understand and, and work to, to be able to communicate in a compelling and winsome and accurate way, the gospel. Because as Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, it is the means by which we can have salvation. So it's very critical we get this right. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And then put a bookmark there and open to Mark chapter 8. And the reason we're using the gospel of Mark, there are four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in each of these accounts, we see Jesus interacting with people, and the gospel writers tell us that Jesus is preaching the gospel of God. But it's in Mark where we actually see Jesus' words, what it is that Jesus is saying when he's preaching the gospel. And so we're going to go back and see what Jesus saw as important in his presentation of the gospel, starting in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, put your finger there or a bookmark there. Skip ahead two years to Mark chapter 8. This occurs about two years later. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 34. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So bookmark these two places in your Bible. We're going to bounce back and forth a little bit. Just kind of bear with me. These are extremely important events in the life of of Jesus and pivotal moments in the disciples' understanding of the mission of Jesus and pitiful, pivotal moments in our understanding of Jesus' mission and therefore the gospel. Now, after John was arrested, he came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 14. He came to Galilee. I find it interesting. Galilee is about, uh, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the center of of everything religious, like the center of religious culture, the center of, of Israeli culture, and, 
And you would think that if you're beginning a revolution, you would begin there, but he doesn't. He begins in Galilee. It's about a four and a half day walk from Jerusalem. And he goes there and he begins preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and and building disciples. It, It seems very intentional to me and something that we can learn from, from Jesus, that he did not start with the religious elite. He did not start with the cultural elite. He started with the ordinary men with ordinary education, ordinary backgrounds to do remarkable things with. And that's so important for us to get that he just wants to use you right where you are to do extraordinary things. He uses people who are willing to follow after him. So he goes to Galilee and begins to proclaim the gospel of God. Now, Note first that the gospel first is a proclamation. I remember when I was a kid, um, and you may remember this too, I've taught this before, I've heard it, and and maybe you've heard it as well. Um, Someone saying to me that if you just live a good life, like live the right way, people will see something different about you and they'll ask you, what makes you different, right? I was a good kid, that never happened to me. And so as a result of that, I never told anybody about Jesus. The gospel is a proclamation. That means we have to open our mouth. If we don't proclaim it, then it won't be understood. Paul knew this, and he lived this truth. And he wrote about it in Romans 10 when he said, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Without the spoken message of the gospel, without the proclamation, we're simply people being nice to one another. And that's a good thing, but it isn't a gospel presentation. So we must begin understanding that the gospel is a proclamation. We've got to stop playing Christian charades, trying to get the world to guess that we're followers of Christ and open our mouth. So let's start there. The gospel is a proclamation. Something else that's interesting for me to note is that Jesus is proclaiming good news. He uses the word euangelion here. That's what it, it, we translate it to mean gospel or, or good news, and that's an accurate translation, but when Jesus used that word euangelion, it didn't have the same religious overtones that it has today. When you say gospel, automatically it has these religious connotations and overtones. That wasn't the case in the first century. When Jesus used the word euangelion, it just meant good news. You can use it in a variety of contexts, like with the, with the announcement of a wedding or a birth or victory in political elections. It was, it was a joyful announcement meant to, to bring you happiness. But most notably, when someone gave a euangelion, most notably, it was someone who had gone away, engaged in battle, literal warfare, and came back having conquered a neighboring kingdom and giving a euangelion, a good news proclamation that our enemies have been defeated, been vanquished, and now we will have peace and prosperity. Now Jesus comes along, and he he appropriates this word. When you hear euangelion, when they hear euangelion, they think of like a Caesar going away and, and having this military campaign and coming back to his kingdom his euangelion, that his kingdom will prosper. And, and Jesus appropriates this word and he uses it to announce the advent of a new kingdom. And that's the, the first element of Jesus' gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The enemy is overthrown and the kingdom has come. 
N.T. Wright says that the four Gospels confront us with a central claim that Jesus was inaugurating God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so what does that mean? We talk about the kingdom of God a lot. And there's a lot that can be said. You can spend weeks and weeks studying about it and reading and trying to understand the kingdom of God. And ultimately what it boils down to is this. The kingdom of God is wherever his will is being perfectly accomplished. Wherever God's will is being accomplished, that's where the kingdom of God is. Wherever people are walking in obedience to him, engaging in his mission for their life, that's where the kingdom of God is. It's characterized by love and justice and beauty and obedience and community and surrender and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, right? This, this is the kingdom of God. It was perfectly manifest in the garden of Eden until the fall when enmity was introduced between God and man. And when that occurred, uh, the God's kingdom and man's kingdom sort of became separate and untouchable, and so there was brokenness there that had to be repaired. And so Jesus comes, and he came, comes to reestablish God's kingdom through his people so that when his people engage in God's kingdom, engage in obedient lifestyle, and we begin to be his image bearers, and we carry the kingdom with us everywhere that we go. But it's obvious that his kingdom hasn't fully come yet, right? There's a, there's a nowness to the kingdom in you and I when we walk in obedience to God, and there's a not yetness to the kingdom. We can look around, and we can still see war and strife and injustice and, and pain and struggle. And so this nowness of the kingdom is what you and I are called to live in here today with our very lives, every day of our life, living as image bearers, ambassadors, of the kingdom of God, giving ourselves fully to him. And then one day when Jesus comes again, he will reestablish this kingdom. He'll be here in bodily form again, and he will sit upon his throne. He'll be the very light source of the world, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is the king. That's the first gospel proclamation. The kingdom is come. The second gospel proclamation can be found in Mark chapter 8. Go ahead and flip there. Turn two years forward to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and along the way he asked his people, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So up to this point in Mark's gospel, there was a lot of confusion about who Jesus was. And nearly every chapter of Mark up to this point, people are grappling with questions surrounding Jesus' identity and his mission. Who is this guy? What is he doing? What are his disciples doing? They're not doing it the way we used to do it. What's going on here? Who is Jesus? He's performing miracles, making the blind to see, deaf to hear. He's feeding thousands and thousands of people with just a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. He's, he's causing uh, dead people to rise from the grave. This is big stuff, and people just aren't getting it. They're not seeing who he is. And so there's accusations that he's, he, there's one who actually accused him of having Beelzebub within him, and, and accusations about him uh, not being a religious person, and, and there's confusion about him. And, but some people are following him and with not really understanding what he's all about. There's just, people don't get it. And what's interesting to me is that the only characters in, the, in all of Mark who get it for these first seven, eight chapters are the fallen angels, those who once had seen him in heaven beside God and, and they see Jesus walking the earth and they 
They cower before him. There's three different accounts. They cower before him. You're the son of God. What are you doing to me? Don't hurt me. But the people didn't get it. And in all this time, all these two years of Jesus' ministry, it's interesting to me that he didn't seem to be overly concerned about the confusion. Right? When people would ask him questions, he would usually answer with a question. Or he'd answer with this confusing parable. It didn't seem to bother him that people didn't get who he was yet until here in Mark chapter 8. They're walking along the road. Mark chapter 8. Out of the blue, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist, who's been raised from the dead. Others, Elijah's or Elijah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asks this all-important question. The question that you and I must grapple with. But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, astonishingly, you are the Christ. The second gospel declaration is that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. Christ is a a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah, which literally means anointed one. So Christ and Messiah are the same word, and they mean anointed one. And when I say anointed, I mean like anointed with oil, right? So back in Old Testament times, in, in Old Testament literature, when someone was anointed, they were either anointed as a priest, they were anointed as a prophet, or they were anointed as a king. And when Jesus rolls onto the scene, and he gets baptized and starts doing all this crazy stuff, and they start calling him the Christ, by the time he gets on the scene, the, this word anointed one, this word Christ, has come to mean king. People have come to understand, when you talk about Messiah, it's the one who's going to come and overthrow the Romans and establish us as a great nation, and we'll be able to worship and, and be respected, and um, people are super excited about it. So when Jesus comes, he declares himself as the, the Christ, he's declaring himself as king. And so for two years, people are walking alongside him as he's preaching this gospel of the kingdom of God, and nobody gets that. Nobody gets that he's the king until this point. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, ah, it's like a light bulb goes off. The king. The kingdom has come, and you are the king. This is mind-blowing to him. He's, I, I get it now. He's the first person in Mark's gospel declaration who recognizes Jesus is the king and openly declare it. And it's like a, a, a switch is flipped in Mark's gospel, and Jesus immediately predicts his own death, burial, and resurrection. And in fact, he predicts it two more times in quick succession. Mark 8 is this turning point. From here forward, it's like a race to the grave that's empty. Jesus as king has huge implications for us corporately as his church and individually as his disciples. There's amazing, unbelievable, unspeakable benefits to those who surrender and submit to his authority and make him king. But there's also great difficulty because while we're living on this earth, we're living in territory that's been occupied by the enemy, the kingdom of darkness. And we're like a rogue force working to overthrow the kingdom of darkness as we give our lives fully to the king. The gospel is about God's kingdom. The gospel says Jesus is its king. And thirdly, the gospel celebrates Jesus as a dying king. So here in Mark chapter 8, they recognize you're the king. He says, that's right, don't tell anybody because I need to die. (laughs) This is like, they don't get this. It's really hard for them to wrap their minds around. It didn't make any sense to them at all. For two years, he's declaring this overthrow, this new kingdom, this language of an open rebellion. We're, 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 We're doing away with old kingdoms. A new kingdom is here. This is a rebellion that's taking place. And and. 
people are starting to finally get it. They're thinking he's talking about overthrowing Rome, and he's the king, and, and they must have felt so much excitement in that moment. I mean, for as long as they could remember, for as long as their parents could remember, and their parents' parents, they've been praying for, dreaming of, longing for, fighting for, crying out for a kingdom to come where they could worship their God in peace and prosperity, and, and they, would, they, would, they would live in this peace with God and with their community, and they're longing for this. And here Jesus comes and says, the kingdom is here, and I'm the king, and they're going, yeah, that's so cool. By the way, I'm going to die. What? No. No, that doesn't make any sense. And Peter says to him, he pulls him aside and rebukes him because it doesn't make sense. That's not how you start a revolution, Jesus. That's not how you do this. And Jesus says to him, get behind me. You're thinking like a man. Stop it. I got this. confusing for them. Jesus had to die for, for Peter. His death is unimaginable for Jesus. It has to occur. He can't wrap his brain around this. But praise God, it doesn't end there. Jesus had to die. The book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as being the perfect sacrifice that ends all sacrifice. And Jesus had to die so that our sins could be paid for. It's an amazing act of grace. But praise God, the story doesn't end there. He does rise again. Mark 8, 31, he teaches him the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. N.T. Wright, again, a, this brilliant thinker, said, Jesus is crucified precisely as the king of the Jews. And one of the first things revealed by the resurrection that, he is crucified, uh, that his crucifixion was, in fact, an enthronement. That's really cool. The historically verifiable resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He's fully human in his death and fully divine in his resurrection. He is who he claims to be and who the Bible declares him to be. He is Messiah. He is the King. His resurrection proves that he has victory over death. Death could not hold him in the grave, and so the follower of Jesus has a great hope for our, our future. We, too, will rise again with him. We will have victory over death. His resurrection proves that he has victory over sin. The, the act of going to the cross was a love-born, voluntary, substitutionary payment for sin, and his resurrection proves his power over it. And we too can have victory over sin. And the resurrection proves that he has victory over Satan. Satan thought that he had defeated Jesus with the crucifixion, but, but Jesus proved otherwise with the resurrection, and we too can have victory over Satan. I mean, this is awesome, right? Because of Jesus' resurrection, we know he's God. We can have victory over sin. We can have victory over Satan. We can have victory over death. But the funny thing is about resurrection, there's a precursor to it, death. Jesus couldn't rise again until he died. The precursor to a physical resurrection is a physical death. The precursor to sharing in the victories of that resurrection, resurrection is a spiritual death. You and I must be willing to place ourselves on the altar, must be willing to pick up our cross and die. That's why Jesus kept saying things like that. He kept saying things like, unless a seed falls to the ground and die, it can't bear fruit. We've got to be willing to set ourselves aside and place Jesus on the throne as king. This brings us to the imperatives of Jesus' gospel. So there's four proclamations. 
the gospel is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. Jesus will die. Jesus will rise again. And then Jesus gives three imperatives, three commands associated with this gospel. Um, when we say imperative in Greek, it's the same as an imperative in English. It just means command. And so in Mark chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he goes alongside the Sea of Galilee. And he sees Simon and, and Andrew. And he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Repent, believe, and follow. Three imperatives, three commands in light of the, of the kingdom of God. Repent, believe, and follow. Now let me ask you, why would he do that? Doesn't that seem strange to anyone else? Like, here comes Jesus, and hey, there's great news. The kingdom of God is here. We're overthrowing the yoke you're under. Doesn't it seem to make sense that he would then go, wait until you see what happens next. This is going to be so cool. You get eternal life. You get the Holy Spirit. All these amazing benefits, right? Like the salesman of Jesus comes out and talks about all the features and benefits of the kingdom of God, right? But that's not what he does. He says the kingdom of God is here. Now comes the hard part. Repent of your sins. Believe in me, which means more than we often think, think that it means. And leave behind everything and follow me. This is crazy. This is, it seems like a, a real downer. Like, it doesn't seem to make sense from my perspective. So what is he doing? Why is he doing that? The reason he's doing that is because the euangelion that he's giving here, his gospel, his euangelion, his good news, is radically different than what other conquerors had done in the past. So, previous to this, as I mentioned before, a conqueror would go, like imagine Caesar going out to a neighboring nation that's been causing all kinds of strife along the border, and, and he goes and, and he conquers this neighboring kingdom after a long, bitter war, and he comes back home to his people, to his kingdom, and he says, I've got great news. We finally, we finally conquered them. And now we're going to have peace and prosperity because of the conquering of this other land. And that's the way it was typically used, right? But here comes Jesus. And what's radically different about his euangelion, his good news, is he's saying, we're overthrowing the kingdoms of this world and a new kingdom is coming and he's making this declaration of good news to people who are not yet in his kingdom. Right? The people he's talking to are not in the kingdom of God by and large. So he's making a euangelion saying, hey, the kingdom of God is here. It's good news. Let's reap the benefits. But none of them can yet because they're not in the kingdom. And so he must give them this means by which they can join into kingdom. This, this call to repent and believe and follow is actually not a real downer. It's really, really good news. It's evidence of God's grace. Think of it this way. So imagine... I came to you, and I had a key, and I had a certified letter from whomever you think is of a person of good authority, right? And I come to you with this key to a lockbox, and I say, contained in a lockbox, if this key opens, is untold riches. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars. You will never have to work again. Your children won't. Your children's children, your great, no one in for as long as you can imagine, will ever have to work again. We'll just live in luxury. Billions of dollars, and it's all yours. Here's the key. You just have to find the lockbox. It's somewhere on earth. 
it doesn't seem like really good news, right? Until the person receives the map with an X marks the spot on where the lockbox is, this is torment. This person will then spend the rest of their lives struggling to try to find this amazing treasure. They'll give everything, all over the, they'll pour everything into trying to find this treasure and they probably won't find it and then their kids won't find it and their kids' kids won't find it or they'll just resign themselves in bitterness and anger because I, I'll never find it. I'll never find it. Throw the key in the trash. Without the map, it's torturous. If, if Jesus comes and he declares the kingdom of God of which he is the king and tells us that he will willingly die in order to pay for the forgiveness of our sins and that he will rise again to secure our inheritance in this kingdom but doesn't give us the means by which we can enter into the kingdom, we would spend the rest of our lives trying like crazy to try to figure out how to please such an amazing God who would do such amazing things for me. He's willing to send his son to die for me, and then I get a key to the kingdom. How can I possibly please this God? And you would work and try and strive and never know if you had done enough to make him happy. Or you would give up, not knowing if it's even possible. This is, this is what many of the world's religions are built upon, this idea of working hard to try to make your God happy. And Jesus, in this amazing act of love and grace, gives three commands to those who wish to be in the kingdom. And it is grace. By grace we can repent. By grace we can believe. By grace we can follow through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he gives us these three imperatives. Repent, believe, follow. Repentance, interesting. Repentance is a turning away from wrong worship to right worship. Typically, we have thought of repentance as behavior modification. I'm going to work really hard to stop sinning in that way. If I was walking this direction, I'm going to turn and walk this direction and not sin any longer. And so we work really, really hard. And for many of us, we, we, we know that battle of just banging our heads against the wall. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. And struggling to do that. When really what repentance is at its core is a change in worship. Any sinful act or attitude that we have Uh, Think of as fruit on a tree. And every fruit that's on a tree, when you work down, um, is born in a root of misunderstanding about who God is or it's really wrong worship. So we have to do the hard work of tracing. Dallas Willard says, you can't become the kind of person who obeys by working harder to obey. You have to be, the only way you become a person who obeys is by becoming the type of person who naturally wants to obey. And that comes with, changing our heart, changing our worship. So you take your, your wrong actions, attitudes, trace what that means about who you're saying God is, and you'll find that you're worshiping wrongly. You're either worshiping a lie about who God is or you're worshiping something else like yourself. And we take that act of wrong worship and we repent of that, preach the gospel back to ourselves. We repent of that wrong worship and worship rightly and you'll see the fruit begins to change in our life. This is a constant act in our lives as we strive to repent by understanding what it is that we're doing and how that speaks about who we believe God is. That's why Paul says we must preach the truth in love to one another in Ephesians, and he goes on to say the truth 
is the gospel of Jesus. We've got to repent of wrong worship. So repent of wrong worship. Um, oh, I'm in the wrong spot. Oh, you got to hear this. Okay, so you guys know who Charles um, Spurgeon is, right? Great thinker, unbelievable man. Um, but be, fasten your seatbelts. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about repentance. If the professed convert or the professed Christian uh, distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows God's will but doesn't intend to do it, you're not to pamper his presumption, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. Do not suppose that the gospel is magnified or God glorified by going to the people of the world and telling them that they may be saved at this moment by simply accepting Christ as their Savior while they're wedded to their idols and their hearts are still in love with sin. If I do so, I tell them a lie, pervert the gospel, insult Christ, and turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. It's hardcore, but it's truth. Dallas Willard says, uh, I already told you that, we don't stop sinning by working hard at not sinning. We stop sinning by becoming the kind of person who naturally desires to obey. We've got to work hard at this, this idea of repentance, changing how we worship or who we worship, and it'll change who we are. Secondly, the gospel demands that we believe. Um, Dallas Willard says, we don't believe something by merely saying that we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it, we believe something when we act as if it were true. When I say I believe something, typically what I'm saying is I'm agreeing with a set of facts about a thing. And usually when we talk about um, the gospel and we say um, those who believe in the name of Jesus will be saved, that's how they hear it. If I agree with the facts about Jesus, I will be saved. And that's an, a really, really critical part of salvation but it's not entirely what Jesus was talking about when he said, repent, believe, and follow. The Bible uses the word pistuo when, he, when we translate it believe or faith. If you see faith or believe in the New Testament, it's usually pistuo. We typically translate it into English words, believe or faith, and, and it has this deep meaning that goes far beyond this typical understanding of just simply agreeing that something is true. In Mark chapter 1, for example, it speaks of a radical change of allegiance that's born in trust and obedience. Belief is always born in trust and obedience. I've given this example before. Um, if I say I believe that exercise and healthy eating will help me to lose weight and live longer, I'm agreeing with that set of facts. In first century understanding of belief, unless I actually begin exercising and eating healthy, I don't actually believe it. When Jesus says to believe, he is, he's telling you to reorient your life around the truths that he and the Bible proclaim, giving yourself fully to him, surrendering to him, giving him the allegiance he is due as king of the universe. That's why he can say to the rich young ruler who comes to him and says, uh, what, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, sell everything you got. Cut your allegiance to this world and give your allegiance to me radically reorient your life around the truth about who I am. Give your allegiance to me. And we, we see this all over the world. It's hard for us here in the West to grasp this, but I guarantee you, if you go to Indonesia and work alongside Jason White, when someone there says they believe, they understand it's a radical reorientation of their life because they may very well lose their life because of it. We need to, please, it's right to say that 
If you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. But please be careful to define what you mean by believe when you're talking to people about the gospel. Belief is more than mental assent. It's a radical reorientation of your life. So the gospel demands that we believe. Charles Spurgeon says, men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. Gospel also demands that we follow. Repent, believe, follow. The New American Commentary says Mark is more than a book about Jesus. It's also a book about being a disciple of Jesus. For Mark, discipleship was following Jesus and suffering and in mission. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Yeah. That's hard. That's hard to hear. But I think he's right. And, and the reason I say this is because Jesus taught with words. He, he was a wordsmith um, and I mean that in the best sense of the word. He could use uh, metaphor and simile and parable and, and outright just speech with people to teach them amazing truths about the kingdom of God. But that wasn't the only means that he had by, to teach with. He also taught with the methodology, the way he lived his life. He was teaching by the way he lived, the way he interacted with people, the way he, he managed his life was a lesson for these people. It was, it was Jesus' mission. So when you read John chapter 17, it's this amazing prayer that Jesus is, is praying just before he's to go to the cross. And in John chapter 17, pretty early on, Jesus says, Father, glorify yourself because I've completed the mission that you have given to me. He hasn't gone to the cross yet, and he's praying, glorify yourself because you've completed the mission you have given to me. What is what is that? That doesn't make any sense. But as you read on, Jesus begins to describe what it was that he has completed. And what was it? He brought along 12 men. And he taught them what it meant to be his follower, to live and love the way he does, not just through his words, but through his actions, so that when he died, when he goes away, these men would then take up the mantle of imitating Christ. And live a life of imitating Christ and teaching other people to live a life of imitating Christ at the same time. That's what following is. That's what discipleship is, is living and loving like Jesus. The gospel demands that we follow him. And now, here's where the, the rubber meets the road. Following Jesus is not an ideology. Following Jesus is a practice. There's a big difference. Following Jesus is not an ideology. Following Jesus is a practice. Dallas Willard said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him on how to live the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. Would you stand with me? The greatest issue facing the world today is whether you and I will engage in being a disciple of Christ and carry the kingdom with us into all corners of the existence. That's a big deal. It's good news that Jesus brought the kingdom of God here to earth. And it's amazing news that he will come again, that he will walk on this earth again, that we will live in this kingdom fully manifested, but it hasn't been manifested yet. And so our job is to be kingdom citizens right where we are.
bear his image where we are. I love what God says to Israel when they were in captivity. They had been taken captive by Babylon and they were living in Babylon. And Jeremiah wrote to them from God, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't increase, but seek, or don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We are living as exiles on this land. Those of us who are followers of Christ are citizens of a different kingdom. And I believe God could be saying to us through Jeremiah, live here, be here, engage here with your community. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that for each of us who declare ourselves to be followers of you, that we would also be kingdom bearers, that we would be image bearers, that we would be followers of you, disciples who make disciples. That's how your gospel gets spread throughout the world. God, give us courage to do the things that you've called us to do, wisdom and discernment to do the things you've called us to do, and then give us a heart of obedience to follow after you. I pray these things in Christ's name. The band's going to play and the singers are going to sing and I'll come right down here. If you, if you don't yet have a relationship with Christ, if you haven't yet surrendered to him and called him your king and chosen to repent and believe and follow him for the rest of your life, no matter what, and you want to do that today, and I want to talk to you about it. I would love to pray with you and talk with you about next steps. Um, or maybe you're here and you have begun to recognize that you have a mission field that's broader than you once thought. You don't have to go to Zimbabwe or Indonesia or to be a missionary, but you can be a missionary in this room. You can be a missionary to your next door neighbors. Um, and you want to talk to me about what that means and what that looks like and just this deep conviction that God has put on you, come talk to me. Or if you're here and you don't have a church membership yet and you'd like to be a church member here, come see me. I'd love to talk to you. Again, let's pray and the musicians will sing. Father, God, move in this place by the power of your spirit. Do what you want to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.